0: file number 2.1 certificate authorities observed by agent crenshaw subject one alias hackalope subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years he has been observed to several fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period he has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance subject two, alias emir Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker.
1: So, Ymir, remember how we were talking about SSL a while ago?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I do.
1: Well, today we're going to talk about certificate authorities, without which we wouldn't have HTTPS.
0: Awesome, I can point most of my coworkers to this uh, podcast because none of them know anything about this.
1: Well, we'll see if they survive. Um, <laughs> anyway, so for the audience at home who haven't been through the the basics of cryptography or only vaguely remember it because they studied for that CISSP a while ago. Um, Let's go over uh, the the very basics of crypto. Um, There are hashes. Hashes are irreversible, unlike raincoats. You take a piece of plain text and you run them through a hash algorithm and it will result in a fixed length string that will always be the same. So if you take the same plain text, you get the same hash every time. There's some complexities on how you increase the randomness and durability of these things, things like salting and whatnot. We're not gonna talk about that. Just understand a hash is a value that can be validated um, and can not be reversed.
0: You're making me hungry. <laughs> talk about hashes and putting salt on them.
1: <laughs> Corned beef. Uh, symmetric encryption is what everybody thinks of when they think of encryption. You have a key, you encrypt a thing. To decrypt it, you need the same key. Asymmetric encryption has two tricks. One is it can encrypt things. It can't encrypt long things. We might have, I think we might've mentioned this once or twice when it's come up in previous episodes. I think so, yeah. Yeah, where it can't encrypt a string longer than the key length. So typically to encrypt things, you take a symmetric key, that you generate out of nothingness, pseudo random a pseudorandom number generator, and uh, you encrypt that so that the person with the private key can decrypt it. So public key to encrypt, private key to decrypt. And then there's signatures. A signature will take a private key to sign and a public key to verify. And usually you take a block of text, you get a checksum, hash that checksum, and then Create a signature with it with your private key, so everybody knows that you verify that this that you say this is what it says it is. And if anybody changes a single character in that file, theoretically, it will change the the uh, the signature and no longer validate. <clears throat> All right. So, how do we take the four tinker toys that are cryptography and create a certificate authority so we can have a public key infrastructure? Well. All a certificate is, is a public key, some metadata that is signed by somebody, which is why I'm sure you've set up like what what I like to call a bench CA where you self-sign something on a Linux command line and then you issue a certificate from that. Yeah, yeah. Typical, hey, I wanna set up my own internal network where I don't get the stupid SSL alerts for all of my management consoles. So I generate a certificate signing request sign it myself.
0: Yeah, it turns out it's bad practice to make all your users click ignore on all <laughs> the uh, SSL uh, cert errors because then when they're on the real world, they're just like, yeah, whatever, I do
1: Yeah, but that makes it so much harder to man in the middle than when you want to.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: So when you create a certificate signing request, you're generating your, your your public and your private key, and you know how it asks you for your, your location and mm-hmm. your canonical name and all that stuff. Yep. Well, it's wrapping that that metadata along with your public key and that's what you're given to the certificate authority. The certificate authority adds some metadata to that and then signs it. And a, a certificate authority certificate is a self-signed certificate. Hmm. Always and everywhere, that's just the way it works. That's how you know it's a root.
0: Uh, you'll probably get into, like, are you gonna get into uh, the different parts like, you know, the common name, uh, subject alt names and stuff like that.
1: I wasn't gonna really get deep into that cause I'm talking about the authorities okay. right now, but uh, let's talk a little bit about that right now. You will see the user principal name is usually ha- uh, has a canonical name. Anybody's familiar with LDAP, that'll look really familiar. There's reason for that. LDAP looks up to X500 directories. That's what it was originally built for. Certificates, are in an X509 format. That's not a coincidence. Certificates were built to integrate with an X509 directory. That's how that all works, which is why the LDAP that you use, that you might use for Active Directory or another Unix directory seems to have a lot of very common elements in the names of certificates if you've ever looked at like the raw display of that. Yeah. In terms of HTTPS and all that, the subject name is what is validated It takes the subject name and it says, what host name do you think you're going to? Are they the same? And then they validate the rest of the certificate. Mm-hmm. There's some other stuff. Um, a, a lot of this came in the third version of of, uh, of X509, the X509v3 section, which allows you for subject alternative names, which you mentioned, uh, which are other names that you can put under there.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know if you've, you've run into this, but just maybe like six months ago when I was doing a cert, Um, One of Google's uh, most recent updates Mm -hmm. now has made it so even if your subject name matches the host name you're going to, if you do not have a subject alt name that also matches that, it will flag it as invalid.
1: I don't think I'd run into that. Yeah. That's... Potentially very annoying.
0: It was because I had to redo all the certs for everything that I had just done because I didn't know that one little thing there. Yeah. So,
1: and it's important to note those are the subject name and the subject alternative names are different fields and are actually in different parts of the certificate body because mm-hmm. all the subject alternative name stuff was an add-on later in the version three header. Um, lots of fun there. <laughs> and, well, I guess we'll get a little bit this out out of the way right now certificates are encoded in an encoding format called ASN1 which is quite annoying and pretty old it's actually uh, related to I think uh, the some of the old plain old phone system stuff it makes it so that certificates don't have any weird characters that can't be transmitted over like HTTP and whatnot mm. but it's actually really tricky and part of the reason why open SSL was required um, open the open SSL re- Library. One of the first things, most important things, it did was give us a library where we, where we could read ASN1. <laughs> um, that actually ends up being important to one of one of the uh, one of the stories we're going to talk a little bit about. But that makes working with certificates difficult unless you've got something to decode them. Mm-hmm. Microsoft kind of makes that transparent if you have something in their certificate or if it recognizes it as a certificate format. You can right click on it and see the whole certificate, all the elements. There's a pretty easy open SSL command to read that. I think it's a open SSL uh, space X 509 space in and your certificate in, and then dash out. Yeah. There's some ways to tweak that, but that's, and it works on DERF uh, encoding, but not PEM encoding, or maybe it's the other way around. But like there, Google it, it, uh, there's there's a lot of really good cheat sheets on that. But if you need to know in your Linux command line.
0: And I'll, again, you might get to this, um... But like when I first started with certificates, um, I learned very quickly that uh, PEM encoding is very welcome on the Linux side as opposed to dir, Whereas mm-hmm. on the Windows side, dir is like the main all be all. So it's always fun. Because my, my CAA is a Windows server. Mm-hmm. So it writes everything in DER, And then I have to basically convert it to PEM before I throw it on any of my Linux stuff.
1: I've had to convert so many times in so many different ways. I may have noticed that at one point, but it's totally absent in my (laughs) And again, I don't don't have to do all that much system administration anymore. So by all of this, the most important thing in a certificate authority, well, there's two important chunks, but the most important chunk, the part where you're pretty much stuck without is the private key, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, for any certificate authority of any size, more than what we just called a bench certificate authority. You want a way of keeping that private key secure. You can do that on your Linux system by encrypting the keys. But if you're doing a certificate authority of any reasonable size, anything that that would be used for browser validation stuff, Mm -hmm. you're gonna use what's called a high security module or sometimes a hardware security module, an HSM. Mm -hmm. So it generates the public private key pair using voodoo of the actual conjugate P and Q values to actually get the private and public key. It gives the public key out. And every time it gets a signing request from the certificate authority, it does the signing. The private key never leaves the hardware security module. Oh, okay. So... It's never exposed. There are elements of a hardware security module that are a high security module that, that, make, that make it so that you can't tamper with it to read it off of the, out of memory. You can't bypass the security measures. They are built to be tamper destructive. Mm-hmm. If somebody messes with them, they will break rather than reveal. And there's some other elements of them like logging whenever they make a signing uh, operation. And then the other side of the certificate authority is maintaining the directory and essentially the database of certificates. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no crypto in there. That's the directory and all of the standards for how the certificate is issued and stuff, the LDAP policy and whatnot, which we're not going to get into at all because I don't have hours in a, or a whiteboard.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big rabbit hole.
1: Yeah. Especially
0: um, when you're creating your own policies and AD for certain certs and whatnot.
1: I worked at a certificate authority for a while, which is why mm-hmm. I know some of this. And I was a systems guy and I thought I understood this stuff reasonably well until I got to the folks that really understand this stuff. And I'm like, <laughs>
0: wow. <laughs> yeah, half the time, like when I'm creating like policies or my web certs or my smart card certs or whatever, it's a lot of me looking at Google and like... What should I do? I'll check off some of these boxes. Uh, yeah, sure, okay. Yeah.
1: So now that you've got your certificate and you use your certificate for like an HTTPS thing, validation happens by creating the entire chain of signatures. So the, certi- the certificate authority from the issuer needs to be in your trust store. In the case of your bench, in order to make sure people don't have to hit, hit those, those, those boxes, what did you have to do?
0: I put my uh, CA on literally everything. Exactly. Uh-huh.
1: Now, the browser world saves you a lot of that by sending the browser with a bunch of those things already trusted. Uh, I just checked the Windows Trust Store on my machine when it was about 76, uh, assuming my little PowerShell mojo was correct and uh, got out the right piece of information.
0: Yeah, the, the only caveat to that is Firefox. Well, other than everything being um, coming with its its own, like, uh, you know, group of like, hey, I trust all these CAs. But like, unless, unless Firefox has changed recently, but, like Google Chrome and IE will look at your, your system yeah. and trust any CAs that your system trusts. Whereas Firefox is like, go to hell.
1: Yeah, that is exactly right. And other things that I've run into problems with are languages. If you, um, or if you're using Java or Python, they tend to have their own certificate of their, their own certificate stores and you have to manage that. Oh,
0: I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, man, it's giving me PTSD flashbacks of having to deal with like Java applications and their key tool and like how to store it. And I'm just like, it's in user share CA certs on my system, just for the love of God, read it from there. Why do you need to make it so hard?
1: I had an embedded appliance at one point that was basically just Linux running in a restricted way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the site I was at was uh, had um, outbound SSL decryption, which meant that it had to accept the root from the from the uh, HTTPS decryption mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I had fixed all of the internal CAs in the thing, but the program they were using to fetch things as a data source, yeah, didn't check those trust stores. <laughs> So I actually put in a bug report, and he's like, "Hey, this tool doesn't check their, your your certificate store at this location. Maybe fix that." Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're not going to get too. And I'm not. I don't have a section in here on on how to troubleshoot uh, HTTPS. Maybe maybe I'll if we ever start up a YouTube channel, maybe I'll do some stuff with that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it can get pretty funky and you're sitting there like just basically restarting Apache over and over again. And you're like, yeah. what the hell?
1: Well, yeah, and, uh, and it would be very difficult to go through some of the stuff, some of the pieces of this without visual aids.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So if you've got that validation mechanism where you've sent the system a, cert- a certificate, it says, okay, I trust your signer or can create a chain to the trust of your signer. Well, now that's valid forever. What happens if I know that that key has been compromised?
0: Go on Reddit and start posting wildly everywhere.
1: I should try that sometime because <laughs> I can't say for sure it doesn't work, but the regular way to deal with this is revocation lists. Um, so there is in the simplest case, which is a certificate, a a file that is a certificate revocation list. It'll have a list of all the certificates that are revoked by their serial number, and then it'll be signed by the certificate authority. Mm-hmm. Again, we talk about how the X500 database integration turns out built into the certificate revocation system is also a way of doing revocation through LDAP, just like all of the rest of the directory stuff. Right. And then the third one, the recent at least relatively recent addition, this has been around for more than a decade, is uh, Online Certificate Status Protocol, OCSP. Um, And what it will do is you make a web request, a request over HTTP for a serial number and it will send back a response of its status signed by the certificate authority. Or uh, now the, the caveat to the revocation signing is nowadays, you can actually designate another public private key pair for revocation, which makes architecting your certificate authority a little bit easier because you can separate the issuing side from the revocation side because people need to access the revocation side. Right. Anyway, so the very basics of certificate authorities. There's a lot of standards by which you have to be audited and build all of your stuff to to various security standards. uh, And every, Trust every browser-based trust or Windows and everything has their standards that they regularly audit everybody on the other side. But it's usually about compliance and basic architecture. They don't look through every issuance or say for sure, hey, you've never been hacked kind of stuff. This is important. (laughs) So one of the first things that people noticed was that VeriSign's root certificate Issued in 1996 was signed with an MD2 hash, MD2. Damn. Yeah, that's still in operation, best I can tell. I know that I'd heard reports about it, but I found an article in 2018 that said it's still in operation, and I hadn't heard that anybody went through any major issues to revoke that. Really? Yeah. Now it's not as bad as it sounds because, as it turns out, the reason we went from MD2 to MD5, or MD4 and then MD5, is for performance reasons. MD2 has almost exactly the same degree of security, the same bits of randomness as SHA-1.
0: Oh, okay, I did not know that.
1: I didn't either. I was actually quite surprised to find that out.
0: Yeah. Huh. interesting.
1: But that's about two to the 63rd-ish uh, bits of randomness, which is mm. reports differ, but probably dancing right on the edge on what kind of collisions are possible right now. Right. Now, for something like this, that's still a difficulty because just because you can engineer a collision doesn't mean that you can engineer a collision with a that is part of a public private key pair that you control. Mm-hmm. So, in order for you to make a, for, a fraudulent root certificate, you would need to make one where the, sig- where the signature matches and uses a different public key for validation. Mm. That we haven't. Met, I don't think anybody's managed to come anywhere close to doing, but that's what it would...
0: Yet. Be.
1: Eventually. Uh, well, so I would say that there's... I can't prove this mathematically because the math is way beyond me, but it's quite possible that there is no combination of characters that is within the requisite size for keys that would allow you to have that, that as a valid collision. Okay. But it, it may not be possible. Yeah, but again, I don't have the math to prove that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, um, so slightly sketchy, and there's actually a fair chunk of, uh, well, not a fair chunk, but a handful of things that are still valid using SHA one, uh, signatures, which is again, kind of in range. So that's that's slightly scary. <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing was that back in about two thousand six. Debian was more popular than it is today, but, but Debian is actually more popular than a lot of people realize because the Debian archive, the Debian distribution of Linux is the underlying distribution that Ubuntu is based on.
0: Yeah.
1: And a lot of stuff, I mean, and Canonical is very good about this, but a lot of stuff, you know, gets fixed in Debian and then gets fixed in Ubuntu.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: So the delay on that isn't bad, but, but it's well known but that's a known issue. Well, back in 2006, somebody was trying to work with the pseudo random number generator in OpenSSL or changing OpenSSL and and having some problems with the pseudo random number generator. So uh-huh. to troubleshoot some stuff, they commented out a chunk of code and never uncommented that.
0: <laughs>
1: Oops. So they essentially commented out the more robust pseudo random number generator and were stuck with a random number generator that was used for ser- for creating public and private keys of about two to the 16th bits. Ooh, ouch. Actually, it was half that. It's a two to the 15th bits, um, about 62,000 or so, which is about two, <clears throat> two, two to the 15th. So it was fixed in 2008. And we don't actually know how broad this problem was. I do know that there were lots of people who had like Debian servers that they would host shells on uh, using OpenSSH uh, open ssh that had their public and private key pairs generated by the debian operating system
0: uh-huh.
1: yeah uh, there were absolutely reports of of people breaking in uh based on on ssh uh challenges and stuff yeah Jeez. people using rsa authentication so what I thought was the coolest thing was, I was when I was at DEF CON and, and one of the guys, was, somebody was, did a talk about some of the stuff, and he showed off a preprocessor that he put into Snort. Now, this isn't a signature. A signature would be a pattern. This is a preprocessor, which is how actually Snort compiles uh, fragmented packets and does a lot of other things before it starts doing signature matching, right? Hmm. Well, what he did was he said, was he started pulling certificates out of the traffic stream did some basic validation on them and if they matched the pattern for for a debian certificate it proceeded to break them (laughs) on the fly using snort
0: that's great
1: um when we're talking about two to the 15th bits of randomness that's the level that is uh, that is possible and that was Mm -hmm. back in 2008 2009 and you know, Moore's law. Yeah, exactly. Let alone using GPUs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a little bit later, in 2009, there was a new cool thing found by uh, Dan Kaminsky and a guy, this is his real name, Moxie Marlin Spike. What they figured out was that ASN1 terminates its strings Using null characters. Hmm,
0: Okay.
1: Unlike in C, where you say, this is the length of my string, and then it says, here's the memory space of my string. Well, like ASN1, like Pascal says, my string is going to go on as long as I tell, as long as it goes on until you see a null. The null is signified as a slash zero. Hmm. What these guys figured out was that if they made a subject name that was you know, www.goodguy.com slash zero slash zero www.badguy.com assuming that they controlled badguy.com the browser would read www.goodguy.com and stop processing. So that certificate was valid in many browsers (laughs) as www.goodguy.com Right. This would enable cross-site request forgery and would also let you uh, grab Grab session cookies because same domain policy. Mm-hmm. You are of that domain. You're reporting to be of that domain. Yeah. Yeah. So you can pull session cookies and stuff. So that got fixed really quickly, but that was a problem on a lot of on a lot of levels. There was no validation coming in on the browser side. There was no validation on the issuing side. This is definitely past the point where people were, were able to issue certificates from a web interface. Mm-hmm. And the web interfaces, for at least some certificate authorities, I never saw any reports on if any certificate authorities didn't allow this, to allow for characters that aren't allowed domain names, namely the slash. Mm, Okay. So, the fact was, like, this was input validation problems on the CA side, validation issues on the browser side, and then the whole ASN1 null terminated thing. Yeah. It's kind of a Nothing saved us from this one. (laughs) (laughs) Then we go to about the same time. Um, Komodo was accused by a Microsoft MVP named Mike Burgess of issuing certificates used by malware. Now, this apparently didn't happen just once. Uh, there were, in the reporting I saw of this, they said that he reported them once and they fixed them once. And then he reported them again. They said, hey, we'll ignore you if you if you talk about this publicly. Really? Again, this is what the reporting says. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything directly from either party, but they were saying that. But there weren't many details available. I tried to, I couldn't discover what malware might've been associated with those certificates. Huh. but. Let's call this Komodo Strike 1, because the next thing is Komodo Strike 2. <laughs> in early 2011, Komodo reported that an affiliate registrar user account was compromised and was allowed the issuing of nine fraudulent certificates of seven domains. One of those was google.com.
0: Okay, I think I remember this showing up in the news um, at one point. I mean, obviously, it came up in the news at one point, but I remember reading it in the news at that point.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it was traced to Tehran, Iran. Is believed that this was an op- that this was obfuscation, um, and potentially another state actor was using Iran. And at that point in time, and for a few years prior, there were suspicions that essentially Iran was allowing other state actors to y- use hosts within their network to initiate cyber attacks. Hmm, okay. um, you, I'll leave it to you to guess which ones, but they start with but, but it might start with R.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> The Republic of Congo? I never yes. thought.
1: Yeah. Can't can't trust them.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the next thing happened not very long after. Did you ever hear about Diginotar?
0: Diginotar? Yeah. No. But also, it sounds like the beginning of it, like a, a pun or something.
1: Like, it's not, as it turns <laughs> out. They're, they were a Dutch certificate authority. They were an affiliate of Entrust, and they also did issuing based on their own certificate authority. They, were In fact, uh were authorized by the Dutch government to issue certificates for the, its PKI government program. Mm,
0: okay.
1: So they were Dutch CA, they were held in good enough esteem for the Dutch government to use them.
0: Right, yeah.
1: Well, in July 2011, they were hacked and certificates issued through this hack were used in a man in the middle for Google. This is this attack was also traced to Tehran, Iran and a hacker uh, did claim credit for both of them. An Iranian hacker did credit did claim credit for both of them. So it's quite possible that the same attacker got both of them. Yeah. But what set this one apart? There are a few things that set, set this one apart. One is that, you know how I said the certificate authority will send the certificate signing request to the hardware security module? Yes. Well, in this attack, the best information we have says that the attacker was able to interface directly with the hardware security module, bypassing the certificate authority entirely. Really? Yes. And what this means is that the certificate authority database didn't have any record of these certificates being issued. <laughs> now, as it turns out, and again, this happened, luckily, at least for the purposes of explaining it, right around the time that I was working in a certificate authority and was privy to some of the analysis of this by the by the big brains that were around, the logging off of the hardware security model, off, off of the HSM, just says, <clears throat> hey, I signed a thing. It doesn't tell you what it signed. It doesn't give you cer- the serial number. doesn't give you the signature, nothing.
0: Yeah, so like super verbose logging, cool.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, the hardware security, the HSM manufacturers at the time said that they did that for security reasons was so that you didn't accidentally disclose anything in your HSM logs. Hmm. Well, while a handful of these certificates were found to be used and those were revoked by, NG- by DigiNotar, they could never be certain that they revoked all of the certificates that were issued fraudulently.
0: Right, because they have no uh, record of what they issued. So Yeah,
1: so we expect that this was actually a pretty small number, pretty close to the, you know, less than a dozen certificates that Komodo had a problem with. But the reason why you may not have heard of DigiNotar since is because they went bankrupt that September. Damn. Yeah, they are the only... Browser level certificate authority that I am aware of that ever got the um what I call the corporate death penalty.
0: Is Komodo Kim- still around?
1: Komodo's still around. DigiNotar you know isn't.
0: I didn't mean I, I thought Komodo like gone under two.
1: Okay, so they changed their name to Septico,
0: Sec, Sec, uh, oh. S E C T I G O. That's probably why like I've not heard of Komodo in so long because yeah, they changed the name, but yeah, I, I just figured because i would not heard of them in a while that like. Yeah, all their issues around that time kind of caused them to go under.
1: Oh, there's another one, actually.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: Yeah, um, actually, the last thing I've got here, although I guess we'll talk about it right now, is they were found to issue certificates to ProveDog uh, Adware, which, um, well, gray, Grayware, which um, used certificates issued by Komodo to do man-in-the-middle observation of users' traffic who had their Adware uh loaded on their system.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Uh so there was a this isn't related to certificate authority not really, but Lenovo was uh had a piece of grayware that they had default loaded on their system called Superfish and apparently the person that found this out uh was doing the Superfish test. They had Privdog installed but not Superfish and it <laughs> failed the uh the te- meaning that 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 it that um the traffic was was being decrypted in the middle, <laughs> so they revoked those certificates. But you know, these guys seem to have a a little bit of a problem <laughs> with validating who they're I- issuing stuff to. But the question that I that I think is important here is who gets the corporate death penalty? Who gets to be removed from the uh, browser trust store? Because one of the reasons it's likely that Komodo didn't uh, is that they were at one point—I I couldn't find stats, current stats—but uh, at one point they were issuers of about 20 to 25 percent of the certificates online at the time. I think this was before GoDaddy made their presence known, but this—but like, they were there; they had a significant number of uh, certificates issued on the internet.
0: So, one more example of just too big to fail.
1: Yeah. I think that that's part of it, although there is a reasonable argument to be made that the only way to stop the fraudulent certificates from DigiNOTAR that we didn't know about was to revoke their route.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. If you don't know how many were issued, you just kind of got to slap them.
1: Yeah, well, going back to that for just a minute, I know that there were some recommendations sent to the um, HSM manufacturers, and they since changed a lot of their logging facilities to make it possible to recover from a DigiNotar type attack.
0: Hmm, okay.
1: They didn't do quite the things that I that uh, I was in the room for hearing advocate uh, uh, people advocating for, like having the serial number actually generated by the HSM, mm-hmm. for example. This is. A side point, but an important point. It's This has actually happened to me where I've issued a certificate and had some problems with it and the CA would reissue me the certificate using the same serial number. Oh, really? Okay. So now I have two certificates with the same serial number that do different things.
0: <laughs>
1: so um, that was the reason why that was advocated for, although I don't believe that any manufacturer uh, of HSMs ever incorporated it. But doing that makes sure that, that the serial numbers don't duplicate over multiple signings. Makes sense. And I guess the last thing we're going to talk about is Flamer. Flamer is one of the big pieces of malware that is very likely uh, associated with the same people who produced Stuxnet. Uh, there are some similarities in the code. Um, and it. this is also Duku, D-U-Q-U. Um, along those lines. I believe this is the third in the chain. Well, this was found to be signed by a valid Microsoft certificate. And the reason why is pretty interesting. Hmm. So the certificate that signed it looks like, to the best of everybody's knowledge, a valid certificate for terminal services licensing that had an MD5 hash. Based signature. Okay. Okay. So in order for software to be valid, or in order for a certificate to be valid to sign a soft to sign software, it has to have an attribute or it can sign a software unless it has an attribute that says this is not valid for signing software. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, turns out that if you can create a hash collision that allows you to remove those attributes, that attribute is no longer there.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And if after the most important parts of the certificate, what's after that, the metadata that's after that is P-Soup, it doesn't matter because the public key comes first, then the most important stuff of the metadata and then the extension stuff. Mm-hmm. So what we believe happened is that the attacker got a valid terminal services license certificate, then grabbed a supercomputer and engineered an MD5 hash collision using the same public key. Right. That they already had because they issued it themselves. They, they, they created the signing request themselves. Yeah. And now that certificate is valid for signing and then signed their malware with that. <laughs> now, the thing is, that wouldn't have even been possible if Microsoft had organized their CAs a little bit differently. As it was, they had one big certificate authority structure, which was all of their code signing stuff was part of the same CA trust system, network of trust as the License Issuing Certificate Authority for Terminal Services. Right. So because they all went to the same route, they all validated. So we don't know who did it, but whoever did it had enough supercomputing power to come up with an MD5 collision and the time and uh, ability to research all of this. And I'm not going to theorize as to who that could have possibly been.
0: But uh, definitely not just uh, Joe Schmo down down the street. Feel like they'd see the smoke coming from his uh, his house with all the supercomputer going on.
1: Yeah. And there's been a lot of dispute about like, there's some communal certificate authority mechanisms out there um, and some dispute on how much we should trust the certificate authorities. And I think I've given at least a few reasons why we should be wary of the trust level. Mm-hmm. But I think an important point to be made there is some of the things that we have some problems with is about what a certificate authority is assuring us about because in pretty much all of these cases whether it's the communal ones or this or uh, the commercial ones what they're saying is the person that has this certificate owns the domain that the certificate is to even under the best of cases Mm -hmm. they're not making any assertions as to the quality or maliciousness of that of the things in that domain or that server specifically or that, that host specifically. Yep. And it's easy to conflate the validation with the confidence in, in good action. But the fact is that none of these systems really validate good action. All they're saying is the person you think you're communicating with is the person you're communicating with.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, malware.com can have a valid cert like you know they can go out and purchase it It, yeah it it tells you nothing like you go to that website and you're like oh well they got a valid cert they must be legitimate what's all this crap coming down on my computer right now
1: anybody pretty much can register a domain name and can um get a cert for a domain that they own Mm -hmm. and i think we've all seen several instances where a close enough domain with some malicious intent does watering hole stuff uh you know Google with an extra O or whatever.
0: Yeah, exactly. And like you know, like the community driven ones, like Let's Encrypt is a really big one. And I know like mm-hmm. we've actually used that on some missions at NASA, um, some of like that word are facing. Like the issue with that is that to run their like re-registration tool. Cause I think their certs expire every year or maybe like every six months. Like it's a pretty quick turnover. Mm-hmm. And they have like a basically like, cron job that you can run and then we'll just go get this, like the new cert and put it in place. But they require you to actually be touching the internet. Mm-hmm. So obviously a lot of internal missions can't do that. And people are really scared of certs. Like I found that like having like, you know, taking, taking some classes on like doing certs and everything, being like, oh, this is cool. And then when I got my job with NASA coming in and being like, oh, everything's self-signed here. Or like, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't even have a cert or you're not even running HTTPS. Like, you know, and it's all internal, but still, like, best practices. And so I took it upon myself to basically build the CA for my mission and get all the certs signed and everything like that. And, you know, I was just like, this this isn't that hard. Like, mm-hmm. the, like the super high-level stuff, yeah, like, you get into, you know, the weeds there, like you were saying, like, if you're working mm-hmm. for, like, a major CA and all these, like, you know, intricate things that you can do and whatnot, but just sort of basic web applications, smart card, um. Mm-hmm stuff like that, like I I now use YubiKeys and I generate my own smart cards, uh, certs, put them on the YubiKeys and use those as like, you know, basically just PIV. Yeah. Like yeah, it, it's, it's not that hard. It's just like, it's a mystery box and people are just like, Ugh.
1: yeah, well, a lot of people hear crypto and anything related to cryptography and they're just afraid of it but you can break it down to a point where it's definitely swallowable. I mean, uh-huh. I've actually been pretty impressed by what you've managed to do over, over at NASA when we've talked about it. Um, I've even tried to steal one or two tricks over <laughs> for the places I work. I've always been impressed by, by how easily you got some of that stuff running, especially the, uh, the SSH authentication with the smart cards and whatnot.
0: Yeah, yeah, we actually had a meeting uh, about tying into like you know, the main NASA, um, authority and, like, you know, for using our NASA badges and everything. And I was just kind of like, yeah, like, I did this with Keys like, three or four years ago. Like, it's not, it's not that bad.
1: So there, there's the basics of, uh, of certificate authorities. I hope that, uh, that helps a few people and pi- probably puts a little bit of fear into the fallibility of it into a few others.
0: We never use the term web of trust. So, uh, web of trust.
1: Yeah. I was about to say somebody lost bingo. <laughs>
0: Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow #hackthegibbs1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of hacking the Gibson on Patreon.